epic stuff with yes before we start i just want to say Horus's special power is riz i have to just say that <laughs> does anyone else agree with that before we start the whole, the whole riz heresy 100 <laughs> oh, percent Oh, I'm editing this as well. So I had to edit it a pitch here with Horace's <laughs> eyebrow raised and his like chin oh, more chad. Oh man. Louise. I know, what have I done? So <laughs> when the Emperor hits you up with that dollar store sword. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm hearing that oh, was that theme to like Sin City, isn't it? I don't obviously we can't play it for copyright reasons. <laughs> I'm just hearing that. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah. and as Horace is like you know your war master and it's just in Sin City okay hello law criminals I am Hal the Amber King, and I'm here to ask the question of the week. How would you resurrect the Emperor from the Golden Throne? Wrong answers only. You can put in the description, hashtag SafeEmp, along with your funny comment, and we'll all read it out, have a little bit of a laugh and a giggle, and we will talk about it on next week's episode. As now, on with the video. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Law Crimes. Today we're discussing more on the timeline of 40k and we're doing something a little bit different today where we will be discussing the Primarchs. Now we're not going to be discussing all of them today but uh, I will hand it over to Hal where he will be able to run us through with what we're actually going to be talking about in detail. So up to you Hal. Yes so today will be a look at the the glorious, the chads, the the money makers, shall we say, in Warhammer, and we'll be going mm-hmm. over the first ten Primarchs. Obviously, we will do the rest later, but we just want to give a bit of a flavour, shall we say, of these. Um, I don't know if the Giga Chads is the right word, but they are like the they're the biggest draw, I'd say, for Warhammer. So Adds if you're of the Giga Chads, <laughs> the, the Chads are the Giga Chads. They are literally that meme, but even more square jaw, like. Like Minecraft, mm. Minecraft jewel. jewel has a jewel. <laughs> the giga is chads. The giggiest. Oh, the oh, I can't. I can't get the word out. <laughs> I'm thinking of a quagmire. Um. So yeah. So today we'll be doing the good old Primarchs, and I'll uh, hand over to Eli to give us the beginner section and our introduction to the best part of Warhammer lore. Take it away, Eli. Mm. Thank you, sir. This will be a very quick beginner section because I don't want to take too much away from what Hal's already going to be saying. So basically, the Primarchs, as you said, are the Giga Chad, genetically engineered demigod sons of the Emperor himself, which he created uh, around the 30th millennium. He created them to aid in his Great Crusade, but before that, the Unification Wars, even. Um, unfortunately for him, they did not really stick around for the Unification Wars because the powers of Chaos, or Erda, whichever, it's technically Erda, I guess, uh, scattered. Yeah, she she literally took the kids and the divorce papers, and it was a big mess for the Emperor. Um, she, scattered, she scattered the Primarchs because she saw uh, the Emperor becoming this, you know, dictatorial war obsessed guy which i mean what else do you think you're creating these 20 super soldier warriors for but whatever (laughs) to be to be fair 
he's not a great dad either, but I don't think tossing no. them into hell was the right move. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but that's taking it to a new level. Yeah. <laughs> These were the Emperor's greatest creations, though, and he put an incredible amount of meticulous, perfect work into them, uh, using him and Erda's DNA to create these, like, almost godlike beings, demigods, basically. Um, they are faster and stronger and taller and bigger and better than a regular space marine in a million different ways, and they all have their own unique powers. Some have crazy psychic powers, while some are even stronger than the others, while some have incredible charisma things like that, but they were all scattered throughout the galaxy, and each landed on their different planets, uh, except for one. No, no, he was still. He just was really close. Um, yes, they all landed on their own planets, and then were subsequently raised on these planets, so they all grew up in different cultures, which made them all very unique and different. Some of them came to conquer these planets, most of them did, though. Uh, some of them were not so lucky and had a very bad time. We'll talk about him in the next episode, I think. Him. Today, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> we all know who it is. And then yeah, it's more than one. which is always unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so mean to Perturabo. So today, we're only going to talk about the first ten, which means the first nine, because one of them isn't around anymore. And he never really was. So I'll say the names, and then I'll let Hal... Describe them in a bit more detail. We have 1st Legion to 10th Legion going from Lion, and then 2nd is Redacted. And we have Fulgrim, Perturabo, Jagat Tycon, Lehman Russ, Rogel Dorn, Conrad Kurz, Sanguinius, and Ferris Manus. And I think that about sums up the Primarchs as a very general statement. Let's get into the more nitty-gritty epic stuff. Yes. Before we start, I just want to say Horus's special power is Riz. I have to just say that. <laughs> Does anyone else agree with that before we start? The Horus heresy. Hundred oh, percent. Oh, I'm editing this as well, so I had to edit it a pitch with Horus's eyebrow raised and his like chin more Chad. Oh man. I know, what have I done? So <laughs> When the emperor hits you up with that dollar store sword. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm hearing the, the what's that theme to like Sin City, isn't it? I don't obviously we can't play it for copyright reasons. <laughs> I'm just hearing that. And as Horace is like, you know, your war master, and it's just in Sin City. Okay. Okay, let's not let's get not get off track too much because today it is, as I said earlier, the best part about Warhammer it's a special lore. Day, it's a special, special day. day. This is arguably the best topic for any podcast. So hopefully we're gonna get into some nitty gritty details and let's take it away. So if you are new to Warhammer, I thought we might be uh, really imperative to know what is a Primarch. Probably the first question. That should be asked. So, as Eli said earlier, the Primarchs are these like superhuman demigod figures that were created by the Emperor of Mankind, or also known as Neoth, Gary, uh, don't know, mysterious figure. It's all Goku, Goku, Goku with a drip. 
Uh, I have to edit that in, damn it. <laughs> Actually, there's, an emperor, there's an emperor drip picture. You can definitely... I looked up hooded emperor for my Lehman Ross video, and it was just the emperor in his golden throne with his supreme jacket on. That so is put that amazing. Put that you sounded way too excited about that. Let's be honest. <laughs> as excited as he should be. That is true. So... The Primarchs themselves were created in the Warhammer timeline towards the end of the 30th millennium. So humanity's been around for like a decent amount, not as long as Eldar, obviously. Respect to Colin there for Eldar lore. And Primarchs are enormous. They are typically, I actually had to look this up, they are between 12 and 14 foot. Um, I guess some of them are like, some of them are the difference between like five foot 11 and six foot, if you know what I mean. Like some of them are very, yeah. some are a little bit taller than others. And well, apart from the, uh, the boys from the Alpha Legion who are short asses, but still. Yeah, they're, they're the short boys. Actually, Alvarez might not, in fact, he would, you wouldn't know his height because it's all redacted. Yeah. Uh, but these are super, these are the super soldiers of the Warhammer universe. They were designed to be the generals in the army of the Emperor of Mankind and it was for the greatest war of their time called the Great Crusade. This was the reunification of mankind following the Age of Strife. So in the Warhammer timeline, humanity's kind of on the brink of failure, shall we say. It's uh, degenerating, it's getting worse, and they're created as a sort of re... Maybe not reunion, but I guess a, a renewal, let's say, a renewal of this... Uh, a new they're For a new golden era, shall we say. And the genetic components that made up these Primarchs, if you didn't, uh, if you are new to Warhammer, they are essentially what turns a normal man into a space marine. So these are the poster boys of the setting. And I thought actually it might be interesting to go a little bit farther back because technically, I may be wrong here, so this is a bit of speculation, but their origins were actually during the mid-20th millennium. And this is when the Emperor of Mankind emerged from the Gate of Moloch. So this is where the Emperor in the Warhammer timeline enters the warp and then immediately a second later comes back into real space and he is the Emperor figure. He's like super powerful. And it sort of implied that he gained the knowledge to create the Primarchs during this process. I might be wrong on that, to be fair, but a little bit of PTSD thrown in just for good measure as well. <laughs> just, just, just a, just a hint. Oh no, <laughs> got a bit of spice. Just a spice, like a little salt bay, uh, little sprinkle. If uh, the emperor's mind was like, you know, like super high end restaurants where they have those like really tiny dishes, he's like the little scoop of like the teaspoon of sauce on PTSD. <laughs> That's a weird acronym. Excuse me. <laughs> so. <laughs> So we return now to the 29th millennium. So the Emperor of Mankind, very much a mysterious figure, and we don't necessarily know all his intentions, but we do know at this uh, dawn of a new age that he's been abandoned by the Perpetuals, which are other immortal humans like him. And this is why he decides to create the Primarchs, because he wants, as we said earlier, new generals for this great crusade. And so he combines his genetic material with uh, the other perpetual called Erda. No, no uh, funny business there. All in a gene lab, I swear. <laughs> Nothing crazy. And this is where they craft, they handcraft the 20 Primarchs. And this is deep inside the Imperial Palace upon Terror. So this is on Earth. And there's this, I'll put a slight warning here. There's some slight speculation that 
I might ask if uh, the rest of you guys if you maybe agree. You might disagree with me, but there is some idea that the Primarch's nature, that they're very souls themselves, they're actually unique warp entities. Mm. So it's perhaps why uh, I wrote here, like they when humans meet Primarchs in the setting, even when it's described in the books, like people just immediately want to kneel and they feel like a sense of awe. Not just um, not not even just like regular people. It's like one of the books with um, Araman talking to Magnus, and he's saying about how he had to really concentrate on not kneeling as soon as he met him because he was just like, "Dad told me not to kneel anymore, and it's really difficult not to." But yeah, there's something. There is something a little bit. There's there's an extra source added to them that's a bit mysterious, and it's perhaps I speculate here. It's, it's also why there weren't more than twenty Primarchs made, and. Slight spoilers, it's why they can't be remade or reborn. Uh, like, you couldn't make a th- like a thousand Primarchs, essentially. There's something there's something special about uh, each of their souls, I feel. Do you guys agree with that? I'm not really... That, that's a little bit of my own bias there. I like that theory, yeah. I think it's also like implied that there's like a kind of... One of the reasons that the Primarchs are so individually... Um, geared towards a specialty is because they kind of have like a, an almost primordial uh, like element to them like with the calm of speed like he's kind of like almost an embodiment of just ast in the very the way that the warp works so it's almost like he's infused with the, the literal like backbone of that idea the element itself um, he's, he's so again that is some force yeah he is he is one with Sonic it's like yeah he is you couldn't get much more it's kind of hard to explain, but yeah, I think I think it is speculative, but I think it's also hinted to it in the books that yeah, they are literally elemental forces imbued with a human soul to an extent. There's something mythological to their nature in a way. I don't know if that encompasses it correctly, but there is something like I said, like speed or like traits. And there's something uh, like almost inhuman myth assigned to them, and they, I guess we could say, it dominates their personalities, but. Mm. Before we could learn all that fantastic news about them, it goes downhill. So uh, they're in gestation capsules, these little 20, I don't want to say babies, because they're like, they're enormous. (laughs) Like, like it's not like a little, like like no one's thinking, oh, wow, I could throw that and get a spiral. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What do you do with children? (laughs) <laughs> how like a family gathering is a nightmare i'm just imagining I, other than whip some it's like oh look at that spiral wow like just that's my baby them. that's an image um i can't believe i have to edit that in <laughs> yeah, the, the bears could use your talent who, who, i say who are the bears they could, use, they could use any talent oh the Chicago football team that was one of the six first ones and is absolutely garbage. <laughs> and they play football with their hands, you know. Yeah, football. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great. We have to discuss that another time because uh, we have to lot. We have to talk a lot about Primarchs, but the uh, English football is the correct football. Uh, final statement. Oh. So, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. That's it. That's it. That's it. End, end of statement. So the basically it all goes downhill from now on and. Deepening like the sort of the vaults of terror under layers and layers in like the most secure places under the Emperor of Mankind's kind of watchful eye. The Primarchs and their gestation capsules are like ripped from inside the Imperium's like innermost sanctums and they are tossed into the warp. As Eli stated earlier, there's a, there's a lot of mystery, there's some interpretation to this event. They think 
it's obviously sorry, not obviously. It was implied that early on in the Horus Heresy books, it was the Chaos Gods that were responsible for this. But there's also kind of more revelations about Erda, the other perpetual. She might have uh, intervened, or there's a certain. The truth of it is kind of a little bit up to interpretation. But isn't isn't there also a bit where like some word bearers go back in time and they're kind of in a weird they're they they observe like the laboratory and they're not really there but they're just observing and they kind of see the the opening stages of that. It's like it's all very all over the place. It's implied like uh, through that book. Uh, for if you are new to Warhammer, this is implied that some space marines during the Great Crusade are actually responsible for the scattering of the Primarchs as they start to learn about chaos. But I actually think, in my own personal opinion, that was a lie, and it's actually a vision like shown to them to help them turn to chaos. I don't think that actually happened. A mirage. Kind of like, uh, I guess it'd be spoilers for Horus, so I'll keep my mouth shut, actually. Not spoilers, <laughs> but like what, what they showed him. Kind of yeah, yeah. so it was a future in which like may or may not have happened or it was a possible sort of event and i think that might have been a lie but so the primarchs themselves all 20 of them in the little cute i don't say cute pods it's not really cute but <laughs> like the little like, archaic uh like warded psychic uh warded pods they're ripped and they are thrown into the warp the realm of madness the kind of reflective mirror dimension within warhammer where basically nothing kind of if, if something good comes from the warp, it has like a little, like there's always something bad with it. It's kind of like Marmite. You know what I mean? You either like or you hate it. And so today we'll be covering the first 10 Primarchs and their kind of story about where they landed and a little bit more about how their home worlds kind of forged them. Uh, we won't be going to, we're, we're essentially going to end at the point at where they will meet the Emperor because this is about uh, sort of their early life shall we say so good evening go back to your own country what the fuck did you just say am i devious yes i think i am she speaks the bullshit first one out the gate as eli mentioned earlier we're starting with perhaps the most handsome chad in all of the setting we have the lion lion l johnson keyword loyalty he's he actually i think he's pretty cool to be honest I, I only learned about him more recently and i think oh competent primark it's a, a bit refreshing <laughs> very much so so it's, it's, it's him and gilliman oh well at the, which one is more competent that's the bigger question <laughs> oh which one of them is awake you got you got me there you, <laughs> you got me there. <laughs> can't really beat that so nice. The story of the lion is so at the, well, at the time he's the first Primarch, so he's he's subject number one. So he lands on the forest world called Caliban, and uniquely to a lot of the fate of the other Primarchs, he was alone. So he landed like he rocketed in, and he landed deep inside like the remote jungles of Caliban, and let's just say Caliban. Not the friendliest. It's not the Fresh Prince of Bella. It's, it's not labelled as a death world. <laughs> death world. Yeah, it's definitely the beginning of the Fresh Prince. Fresh Prince of Bel Air, but in reverse. He goes to the to the worst <laughs> neighbourhood. Yeah, this is a t- oh, it's my pod crashed down. Uh, yeah, this is a that that's a. I can't believe I brought that reference. It's not even in my notes. <laughs> so he lands on this world, and the forest itself is full of really like monstrous and creepy kind of it uses the word specifically 
painted creatures. It's a very like a forest is the nice word, but for it, it, it is a nightmare of a forest. Let's just say it's not a pleasant place to like live. And he actually spends the first decade of his life completely alone. He's essentially a feral beast. He's in the wilds, like hunting and eating by himself. He, he is hardcore Tarzan. Pretty much, he's like Bear Grylls, but the real like hardcore. The actual the program, <laughs> the real Bear Grylls, and this sort of again, as I said, continues for a decade until he meets a human. So one day, the humans of the world they actually find this. There's a story uh, of how the first Primarch is found by the humans, and they find him like this injured little creature. It's like full of mud, and he's um, just like they think he's like a discussing like another one of the beasts, but they actually. To their shock, it was a human being, and obviously not just a human being, an enormous, kind of slightly quite enormous human being, a yeah. slightly so bigger they proportion. Him, didn't they? They did, they did. And this was found by the man named Luther. He's very important to the lion's uh, story himself. Spoiler, he's called the lion. So, so Luther is a human who is part of the knightly orders of Caliban. So Caliban itself is a semi-technologically that's a bit of a mouthful there semi-technologically advanced feudal type world so they have a kind of I guess like best way to say it feudal system there's like serfdom and Mm. things like that they do have some advanced technology they have like mentioned like power armor and things like that but again they kind of they follow like a very old doctrine shall we say and Luther is actually the man who takes the the uh, first Primarch in, and he names him Lion L. Johnson. This is where he gets his name, the Lion. And uh, he sort of is guided. He's nurtured by Luther. He essentially grows up in a, uh, a like in our own world, like a holy order of knights, essentially. So that's like the Lion's upbringing. It's very much just martial. Ray, raised by like the Teutonic Knights or something. Essentially, yeah. Very much a kind of... I wouldn't say a normal human existence, but <laughs> that's, that's too far. But he has a, like a very different kind of upbringing. And I think Eli, when we were actually talking about this, Eli mentioned a really funny uh, tidbit. He mentioned how when Luther first saw him, the Primarch filled him with more dread than any other monster. Because that just shows <laughs> you that the, when you do see a Primarch, they are actually like properly intimidating. And they're not, not you know, it's not just, not just a big human. It's actually like, oh, this thing could like break me in half. And the lion growing up, he, I mean, he was exceptional. Primarchs themselves can learn. They, I said earlier that they're stronger, faster, smarter. He picked up uh, language like super quickly. And he eventually became the leader of all the various uh, knightly orders of Caliban. They all united under his leadership. And they enacted a, I put quote unquote, crusade to purge the. There's a certain theme of crusade, shall we say, in like Warhammer. Father like son. So he, he enacts a crusade to purge the monstrous beasts of Caliban once and for all. And when they finally completed this purge of these alien beasts, uh, with the lion sort of leading the charge and him, you know, trained all his life essentially as a soldier, he they finally do it. And that's when the big E shall we say, big emperor, big chatty daddy, uh, arrives. And just a sort of small description, kind of what the line uh, is. I think I said to Eli as well, like, I remember listening to Major Kill's videos and he said um, he thought the lion was a was black. 
And then I thought that was the same for the longest time too, because they don't actually like often tell you the description of certain characters in Warhammer. So I thought I'd give a little bit of like a kind of rendition just to visualize him if you are an uh, audio listener. So first uh, trait, he's enormous. He is huge. <laughs> he's actually quite fair skinned. He's, I think you said it early, earlier, Andy, like sort of a King Arthur looking figure. It's like, An Arthurian it. legend in Warhammer, basically. Very much so. They have a, like, and his war gear as well. Because I thought there's no way you can't mention a Primarch war gear. So he has a very much mm. a Templar slash Eastern European, like tectonic uh, order vibe. Thank you, Colin, for that I, uh, mention I earlier. I do like how the Ooh. residents of Caliban can make power armor, but they haven't figured out light bulbs. It's like, amazing. <laughs> Priorities, <laughs> and and you can thank Europa Universalis Four for making me think of it. <laughs> I've been playing that too much. Nice. I love that game. And so for the lion himself, he his personality is a commanding, quiet. He's very reserved, like a regal type figure. Many people have often said like he's quite emperor like himself. He's very much a, I wouldn't say politician, not the right word, but I guess a warrior king sort of uh, vibe to him. He was actually, amongst even all of the other Primarchs, he's a brilliant tactician and commander, but uh, he has terrible people skills. <laughs> he mm. he often, it's often safe that he actually doesn't read other humans very well. It's probably maybe because of his upbringing, being alone for so long. Yeah, killing massive beasts with your bare hands when you're like one year old, like probably does that to you. A little bit. And like even then it stayed like Luther, his like his father figure, like he often had like step in and to help be his like orator, his like uh kind of wingman, shall we say? Because he was just wasn't you know, speeches aren't really for the lion. And I thought a little a little bit of uh extra spice to this uh video. I thought it'd be interesting to know where the real world uh historical inspiration comes for some of these Primark figures. So Lionel Johnson's name actually comes from the uh, English poet Lionel Johnson. Not very subtle there. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of subtle reference <laughs> in Warhammer. And he is the author of the poem called The Dark Angel. Uh, if anyone wants a little bit of reference to that, it's the Dark Angel poem is about the man being a uh, closeted man, uh, shall we say. And uh, he very much sort of speaks about this dark secret he's hiding. And if anyone knows anything about Dark Angels, secrets are kind of their... Fine. I should have put a keyword secrets for the lion, actually. Yeah. It would have been better. And uh, so that's the lion, shall we say. And wasn't, uh, oh, oh, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. So it wasn't didn't him and him and Oscar Wilde were very close, uh I would have say? to I have to look more into that myself, but I only know in reference to uh the poet Lionel gotcha. Johnson there. But it might have been true, it might have been true. If anyone is interested in, in that uh Definitely look it up because it's obviously history is really cool. <laughs> we, we're all Warhammer fans, so we probably all leak from history. Workshop will plagiarize anything without any shame. <laughs> no, no shame whatsoever. Just look no at shame. the Empire of Man, the Holy Roman Empire with the serial numbers piled on. Wow, it's like it's like copying someone's homework, but you're just so blatant. It's, it's like poetry; they rhyme. Oh, good. oh, oh, George Lucas, George Lucas. I remember yeah. that now. And so now we move on to Primark number two. We made this one up. It's a made-up tale. It's a total fabrication. It never happened. It never happened. This one was invented by a writer. Not this time. Uh, redacted. This one is missing. So this is a interesting part of Warhammer lore where 
the second and spoilers the 11th primarch are known as the forgotten and the purged so as we know within warhammer history all imperial records have been expunged they are if anyone knows dark souls lore it's like the um firstborn son of oh, gwyn firstborn of gwyn yeah yeah that's a cool mm-hmm. reference there. and uh literally he's Name they working. are oh yeah it was, that was pretty I, I enjoyed that they finally and got that in the plan. last game so he, the second Primarch is completely missing from Imperial history. We get very few moments of like, they give us hints throughout the Warhammer lore, but they're very much a an intentional mystery uh, left within the universe. I have found like some notes. There is a reference which I think Fulgrim, uh, the third Primarch makes, which is that these he remarks that his second brother uh, was a had a personality of being quiet and contemplative that's kind of what we mostly know uh i do have a theory myself that he might be the forgotten part of the forgotten and the purged uh area he's uh he's like he says he's humorless as well like he's a very straight-faced kind of guy right definitely if i remember correctly some, something i mean to add, this will we'll definitely cover the missing prime marks in there i think they're they're enough for be I mean, its own episode because there's such a interesting mystery. But do you guys have any thoughts or speculations uh, about the missing Primarchs? I think you might. Do you have any idea about? I think there was some reference to it where we think they might have gone missing or what conflict in that. Or do you have any like thoughts you might want to share? Uh I don't. It's not. I guess that's strictly about the them. But I know there's the rainbow from old like rogue trader when it was first coming out when we knew all 20 of the legions uh i know one of them was the rainbow warriors and wasn't another the vindicators or something like that it's a god really old lore holy freak i'm glad they didn't put rainbow warriors because that just (laughs) seems like it's a slap in the face found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow (laughs) oh lord (laughs) to be be fair they actually looked pretty cool they were i think they were supposed to like aztec themed space marines Oh, Ooh. and uh, I have to say oh, now, look at that plumage. I have to say now, like the Warhammer does have, like, even though it's definitely like copy your own homework, and there's a lot of like cool, uh, repetitiveness, like myths of like our own history, like coming up, uh, within the Warhammer setting, like sort of history itself repeating. I often find like we could, we could use a little bit more flavor in terms of like cultures we draw from in certain areas because a lot of it is just very much it's either greco-roman or you might notice a theme is either greco-roman or greco-roman <laughs> so yeah <laughs> and sometimes a little bit of gothic like the architecture a mm-hmm. little bit of gothic too but uh so that was the second primark and i'll now hand it over to eli to talk about our our glorious perhaps yeah. top three primarks ever yeah. take it away eli yeah. for the next primark yeah. <laughs> I'm a snag. I'm a snag. I'm a snag. The prettiest boy, the most beautiful fellow. Don't at me, Sanguinius. <laughs> it's Fulgrim himself. Us. I, sh- I should have asked earlier. Are we, are we talking about past the big no-no time, or are we just <clears throat> keeping to before the big oopsie? Uh, we we can keep to before the big end. Okay boy uh you know good old chemos a bit also i'll say here as well uh keyword for fulgrim perfection before mm-hmm. the lorgar let down 
Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a funny way to put it. Um, so yes, Fulgrim uh, descended upon this planet called Chemos, and the planet of Chemos was also a death world. Not quite like Caliban, though. There weren't any monsters on it. It was just this barren, awful place where the resources were dwindling. They had old tech that barely worked, so the population had to work day and night with, uh, with literally no free time. The, it was rare to work. It was rare to live past the age of thirty. Um, they had to just work constantly because if they stopped working, they wouldn't be able to eat. They wouldn't have the resources that they need to survive because their machines were just so inefficient and they didn't make things well enough for the population to have any time off of work. Oof, Andy would have been gone by now. (laughs) (laughs) Chopping block. I was was wondering, was that a personal insult or was that just because I'm the oldest? (laughs) No, 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 because they literally, you wouldn't have made it past the age. I'm I'm asthmatic as well, so like, (laughs) it's like a mining world. Yeah, so yeah, they're all mines and working in mines and resource resource producer thingies. Um, (laughs) My lazy ass would have died well before Andy. (laughs) 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 But basically this, uh, this pod comes down from the heavens and makes this big scene and the scouts see it and then some guy comes out and um they find this beautiful baby with purple eyes who is akin to an angel from the heavens and they think it's a sign of some sort and in something that never happens on chemos ever he was volunteered to be taken in as an orphan because obviously on a planet with no resources they just get rid of orphans and they're not allowed to really exist at all um, but I'm, this man took. Hmm? I, I always speculated that this is a bit dark because it's obviously a grim, dark universe. That the orphans get put in the resource machines. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. that make that would make sense, honestly. Corp starch has to come from somewhere. That's right. That's right. What's, so he takes like, is, it, is it veal? Or it's like baby cows? It's like the equivalent of that for humans. Mm. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. Lord. Oh, okay. It tastes All like right. depression. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> gosh. oh man. So so they take they take Fulgrim in and he grows quickly, obviously like all the other Primarchs. Uh but he's he's just a guy. So he goes and works in the mines with them. He starts he starts at the very bottom which is a really cool part about Fulgrim's stories. He starts at the very bottom and he goes to the very top. Um, but he starts working in the mines. He's way stronger and way better than everyone at literally everything because he's the perfect being to ever live. And so he's able to put a lot more work in than the others. And he's also a technological genius and he's very good at forging and creating things. So he starts to improve upon their resource production machines and ever so slowly, the people in his area start to actually uh, have a net gain of resources, which has never been seen before. And eventually, Fulgrim works his way up to the very top of society and starts traveling around the world with teams of engineers to improve everything. And the world all of, all of a sudden transforming into this beautiful, lush, ripe place with actual nature and not just desecrated, horrible land. And... Eventually, Fulgrim becomes the planetary governor of the whole place without a single drop of blood shed. Much different than a lot of other Primarch. I think he's. I think he's the only Primarch that unites his world through diplomacy, doesn't he? Mm. He's the only one. Gilman did, didn't he? I don't know my Gilman. There was there was a few wars, lots of fighting. Oh, there was. Yeah. I just like the idea that. Sorry. Oh, so is Gilman the eighth, right? So we're thirteenth Primarch. Oh. 
Oh, I'm I thinking when he was found. He's the eighth found, I think. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Pardon me. Uh, then I. Uh, <laughs> it, it was a little bit of diplomacy with him, a little bit of war, a little bit of everything. Yeah. yeah. I just like the yeah. idea that when Fulgrim actually got like his inaugural speech, where it's like, what, what would you like to say to your people? Now you've United, he just went. Started from the bottom, now we're here. And that was yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> out of the mic. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, uh, now that Fulgrimed kind of like reclaimed this planet and fixed it, his population had time to pursue the arts and have leisurely time in general. And he became very prideful uh, of these people and very proud. Not prideful in a bad way. He was still... his. Intentions were really good. He was very obsessed with perfection, but not to the point of like breaking your minds. He was he he wanted perfection and to better himself so that he could better other people. And he was a very noble man and a great leader and a great person in general. Um and that will change very much in the next ten thousand years, unfortunately. But he started off as one of the most pure and perfect beings that the Emperor had ever created. Um should I go a little, a little farther? I was going to say, I was, was going to say, you can tell it's Eli's favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, awesome. Well, I think we'll, we'll keep it, we'll keep it just before he meets the, uh, to, up to the point where he meets the emperor, I guess, and then right. we'll. Well, that's this point. <laughs> then he meets okay, the emperor, <laughs> and he kneels, he kneels to the emperor, and sees that he is the perfect being, and that uh, he goes with the emperor with no arguments, uh, no challenges are required, and no. Uh, holes to jump through or hoops to jump through, I mean, which is nice. His uh, real-world inspiration maybe comes from the Latin word fulgur, which means lightning. Um, and his nickname Ooh. is the Phoenician, which will come in, I think he gets later, uh, which is a reference, probably, you would think, to the culture of the Phoenicians. The, he's all, <laughs> Fulgrim and his legions all about purple as well. Their armor is purple and I know purple is a very regal color, obviously, and the mm. word uh, Phoenician means purple country. They traded purple dye with people. Yeah, he's very, th- th- yeah. Colin, you're a you're a history boy. Yeah, you Colin knows way more about this. Yeah, I you, you might wrote. know. <laughs> you might know a bit more about the Phoenicians. Uh, they were the Phoenicians were the so if you know Carthage, you know Roman history. Uh, oh yeah, Carthage was a initially a colony of the Phoenicians. Uh, that grew so big that they kind of became their own little empire. And they were, aside from Rome, they were one of the dominant powers in the Mediterranean. And then Rome uh, proceeded to unexist Carthage very hard. <laughs> uh, to be fair, it did. Uh, it was over the course of three wars. And if you guys know Hannibal Barca, the guy who walked the elephants through the Alps. Yeah, the Punic Wars. They uh uh, pretty much one of the only opponents Rome faced, at least in its early history, that really like rivaled them, like, them, like, like rivals. Like, yeah, like rivaled them. Like they, they, plenty of people gave them good fights, but as an empire, Carthage was one of the only people that. Well, as maybe not, they weren't the empire yet, but they were one of the toughest opponents Rome had to face. So, the, so Fulgrim's a nice little uh, cheeky nod to them. A, a, a little. A little bit of language lessons also. I believe oh, yeah. in Swedish, full means ugly, and grim is ugly in Danish. Uh, so, <laughs> in some uh, other yeah, languages, his name yeah, also means ugly, ugly. <laughs> Eli's not oh, a fan. Just a, a last little bit on Fulgrim as well. Uh, can you describe, Eli, his 
general like aesthetics as well, just for someone yeah. who doesn't really know Fulgrim? Yes, well, he's Lorian. very pretty, first of all. Thanks, Sanguinius, but he's uh, he's naturally beautiful. He doesn't need any of the wings and, you know, makeup and whatever. What? <laughs> he, Do you think his wings are Sanguinius like clip-ons? <laughs> Sanguinius is lovely. He's so pretty. Sanguinius is an, is an angelic being. He's not... He's, blah, it's not. It's blah, not the same blah, thing. Ogrim is all natural, baby. <laughs> there's a really cool moment. He's had some work done. <laughs> a little, a little bit, a little touch up. There's a cool moment uh, just with just before the cows of Nikea in Warhammer, where Magnus the Red, the Primarch, he's uh, entering into like the kind of council chambers, and he actually sees Fulg. It's described as Fulgrim and Sanguinius arm in arm, like laughing together, approaching. I just imagined like. If you're a mortal human seeing that scene, you'd actually die. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. Fulgrim had a lot of good relationships with his brothers for quite a while. But he, uh, yeah. That doesn't <laughs> end well. exceptions. <laughs> might have to disagree that he's perfect. Yeah, well, yeah. Also, interpretation. Perfect being in Warhammer. Carl Franz. Like Carl Franz? Sigma? No, it's Snorri Nosebiter. Yeah. Oh, I think it's Snorri Nosebiter voice. We need some oh. Snorri voice line soon. Right, I'm well, sad because I thought of Snorri. Sorry, Anakin. Uh, Depressio. The, the, uh, he wears the gilded Penapoli. Uh, I think I said that right. It's just, uh, Penelope? Yeah. Penelope. Penelope Cruz. <laughs> it's, it's basically just this very intricate, mastercrafted purple artificer armor with gold and jewels. And it likes it's bling. like... Yeah, it's very he's very blingy. It's very, very pretty. He has long, flowing white hair. It's all beautiful. Fulgrim is like L'Oreal mixed with Gucci. That's Fulgrim. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually perfectly describes him. Oh, he wears the red Perfect. cape and everything. He's got the, the eagle on his shoulder pad. And he wields, or used to wield, a sword called Firebrand, which is like was like an ever-blazing sword. Kind of like the Emperor's sword, but... Smaller, I guess. And well, we've had a uh, we had pretty boys here though, but I'm a f- so sorry that we have to now talk about something a bit more uglier, shall we say? So yeah. we're we're gonna talk Ooh, about. Seven. I have to. I'm just gonna be honest. So, dude, what's all that stuff you're grabbing? Tools, tools, duct tape, zip ties, and gloves. I have to have my tools. We now move on to the fourth prime mark. So this is Perturabo. Keyword. Iron. So the story of the fourth Primarch was, uh, this will repeat a little bit. So the gestation capsule is rocketing from orbit. That happens a lot in Warhammer. Uh, Mm. People might know it's a theme. So the fourth Primarch lands on the world named Olympia. And this is an extremely like mountainous uh, place full of rugged terrain. And the people of this world are... Uh, inhabitants who live in warring city-states. It's kind of a... Ma- okay, not even a subtle nod to ancient Greece. <laughs> so, Greece. It's just Greece. It's Greece. Oh, yeah, Literally a little bit. Said, oh, Olympia is this mountain... It's mountainous Olympia. Hmm. L- little bit, uh, you know, a bit of a uh, silent uh, nod there. You know, not everyone might catch that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, Perturabo was his name. And uniquely amongst all of his brother Primarchs, the fourth Primarch, just, he knew his name instinctively. Like, he didn't get named 
Fulgrim was named, I think, was it from a Camosian uh, deity? Yeah, the lion. Or his name meant something. I forgot what. I forgot what his name meant. Yeah. I think uh, the the lion was obviously nicknamed by or given name by Luther, but Perdrabo yeah. knew his name, and yeah. he crashed into the mountains of Olympia. And uh, for the beginning of his life, he was by himself. So he was kind of ro- like a little feral creature, kind of like the lion, but not. You'll see why it's not really like that. But he was roaming. He started to find livestock. He ate it barehanded, I assumed. And he would even fight like little monsters and serpent creatures upon this like weird, like craggy terrain. And he eventually found, he started to explore further down the mountain. And that's where he found humans. And the first time he kind of interacted with a human, he actually went up to a like a local village blacksmith and he used words. I remember in the uh, Primark book, he sort of used words he just heard, but he kind of under, he knows what the words mean as soon as he hears them, but his language is really basic. And he just starts to forge himself a weapon and uniquely for Perturabo, he just knows how to do it. It's almost like the information is kind of on like, on his like very DNA. So Perturabo, the fourth Primark, unlike I think for I would I think Fulgrim probably learnt as he grew up, but but Perturabo just knew what he was doing, and the kind of story about this incredible, special, kind of slightly enormous child. I find it, I always find that image quite funny. Like this is this massive child in the mountains, uh, and it's not terrifying. And this story found its way to Damikos, named the Tyrant of Locos, and Locos is a one of the warring city-states of Olympia. And he took in Perturabo. So Perturabo was obviously a Primarch. He was incredible. And Danmakos immediately, as the tyrant of the city, literally a tyrant, obviously ruler of the city, he made Primarch his adopted son. So uh, Perturabo got an education. He was given materials, given kind of anything he wanted, really. But... Pajarabo's upbringing is it's kind of a bit um, like it's not even when he has all that it's not even a happy one like because Olympian society where he grows up in it's really hierarchical it's filled with war intrigue and politics it's obviously kind of like literally the Game of Thrones like a great game mm. and um, transactional this, almost yes like, it's, I was like go ahead sorry or like, like the way he treats them is like, ah, oh, the boy has some talents. I will use them to my advantage. Very much so. They're kind of, they're not, uh, they're not really like, I guess, the same way like we have, because like, the the politics interrupts the family life, shall we say. And this annoys Perturabo so much as he is kind of, we see from like every, the way he treats every situation, he's a being of logic. And he doesn't really fit in with the people around him because they're all like cunning and political, and he's very much direct. And based on the Greek gods, so they're a whole bunch of the worst people ever. <laughs> we were going to use a you could use a worse word there. I can tell. <laughs> I think it's like like they're they're wanks essentially. <laughs> so let's, let's go with that. They're, they're wank Bacchus bags. Is okay, Bacchus is fine. I was thinking of the anime, like, oh, Baka, <laughs> the, the blushing thing. He's the god of wine, I think. Oh, God, Jeez, I misinterpreted that. I made an anime reference. I'm so sorry <laughs> for that historical fact. Now he's the weeb and not me. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> now. 
So Perturabo didn't, he didn't fit in even to the extent that he didn't even take an Olympian name. Like he wasn't, uh, he literally said, I will be Perturabo. And he kind of like snubbed a lot of the uh, Olympians that way. And his kind of inbuilt genius, his aptitude uh, for architecture and like sculpture work uh, was eventually directed towards war in a place like this. And kind of unlike the rest of the Olympians, Perturabo was, as I said earlier, he was direct. He didn't, uh, there was no diplomacy or politics. He just, he built the machines and he took down the walls and he, with brute force, he conquered Olympia. And kind of, so for the, like, the aesthetics of Perturabo, because I actually think he looks quite cool. And again, yeah. point one, he's enormous. <laughs> he is a chunk, mm. absolute unit of a man. And he has a slightly tanned skin, kind of Greco, like obviously it's Olympia, it's Greece essentially. He has like mm. his himself like Greco features, kind of like dark hair and uh, there's like, like with like his war gear. It's just like, hey, Puerto Rico, when you go into battle, do you want to carry a war hammer, a Gatling gun, a massive turret, a cannon, or like a sword? And his answer is just yes. And he's just got yeah. all these guns <laughs> and everything. He's kind of like. If Battletech uh, was meant to fit in a human form, if you know what I mean, it was like mm. it was like meant to say, put the Battletech robots and put them on a person. He's a unit of like a mix of. I think even I could I could probably I can probably get away with saying that some of his uh, armor has some Roman Greco design to it, but a lot of it is kind of uh, brutal uh, tech. Just a weird com. It's hard to describe it in a. It does have that way. pattern on it, though. Um, you know, like in Hercules, where they've got the vases and they've got that kind of angular, kind of swivelly design that goes around them. It's, it's, he's got that kind of pattern. So there are mm. like those Greek symbols, but they're they're, they're kind of subtle. Also, also stripes. <laughs> Lots of, of stripes. stripes. Lots of stripes there. And his. Oh, okay, sorry. He's definitely got the uh, Steiner Scout Lance of four Atlas Mechs, which, if you don't know what BattleTech is. Imagine a scouting force consisting of nothing but uh, warlord titans. Yikes. And so his personality, you probably get a hint of what it was, but he is a blunt, brutal, deeply like logical being. Pasharabo, I think there's a kind of nice uh, counter to him, that he he himself actually loves to be an architecture. There's even like a cool... Mm reference even in during the horrors heresy like i think fulgrim delves into his mind and he like he tries to find what perturabo's dream is and his dream is literally just him being an architect in an age of peace so he's actually got quite mm. a or, or even the bit where magnus and him are in a in a book and he's they're just walking through and magnus goes oh is this your workbench look at all these gadgets you're working on and he's like yeah i'm working on some stuff he's always like he 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 never wanted to be a general he just wanted to make stuff yeah, actually, sh- I, I'm going to shameless plug because I actually have that exact excerpt uh, read out on my Magnus video. Shameless nice. plug there, but nice. it might as well. Um, and uh, the unique kind of, I found this quite interesting about Perturabo himself, where Perturabo knows instinctively about technology designs. He never had to, he's never designed anything. He just had the mm. blueprint in his head. So there's actually a weird kind of insecurity about him where he actually doesn't, he never invents things. He actually just kind of regurgitates um, th- uh, designs. So he actually has a, 
He doesn't really have an artist soul, if you know what I mean. He's Even a though. living STC. <laughs> That's actually perfect. Living STC. Uh, for someone who doesn't know Warhammer, STC is a standard template construct, kind of like a a build anything device. He literally, you basically put in the ingredient. It's kind of like a what's the Minecraft equivalent? Like a it's a, it's a Lego master builder. Well, pretty much. What yeah. Are they, what are those uh, things in Star Trek where you just go like coffee and he just builds one? You're like, oh, how to do that? I don't know. Or the the food thing. Well they, just, like, <laughs> well, they just need to go like I need this, and they just it just makes it from like atoms or whatever it is. I can't remember what it's called. Kind kind of, I know what you mean, but I can't remember the name of it. But uh, there's, there's like a last sort of facet of uh, Perturabo's personality, which is paranoia. Some of this is from being raised in Olympia, you know, assassins and cutthroats. But also, ever since Perturabo kind of came to consciousness, he could always look to the sky and he would see the warp tear called the eye of terror and it kind of always made him unnerved at times he wasn't always trusting because he kind of he always felt like he was being watched which obviously i think everyone behaves differently differently when they're being watched so he was very much a little bit i want to say not insecure but a little bit off you know he had, he had his shoulders were stiff at all times and the inspiration for perturabo is actually there is some speculation here because it may be slightly obvious that his name kind of sounds like the word perturbed, <laughs> which, you know, no one would have guessed. I can't believe, you know, you know, wow, completely out of the blue there. Which, the guy named Perturbed is perturbed a lot. He, he is slightly perturbed, Arabo. And it also, uh, it might be a reference to the motto of the author, Sash ocular i don't know how to say the word but ocularist called alistair crowley uh perdurabo meaning i shall endure which is alistair crowley is quite a weird alistair crowley is quite a weird figure in uh if anyone's like read some of his stuff he's i guess ocularist is like a kind of a weird like he delves into like the mysteries of the universe and things like that it's a bit of a strange great um ozzy osbourne song as well mr crowley oh i didn't actually know that that's quite cool but so now we kind of we leave the slightly iron faced, uh, craggy looking man, and we we now go to perhaps the fastest Chad in all of Warhammer. So now it is the Best fifth Primark. Primark. Dying the life of a true Brexit geezer. Rev up the Bugatti. Jagatai Khan. Keyword freedom. So, woo. So Andy will probably dip a, dip in a lot on this one. <laughs> so the fifth Primarch, he roared out of the warp in his gestation capsule, and he landed on a planet called Chogoris. Best name of all the planets, I have to say, by far. <laughs> Chogoris just hits different. You don't like Barbarous for being so barbaric. <laughs> uh, you were you were you were hitting that, and then it, you know like the horse picture. Of like yeah. songs in like our Game of Thrones seasons when and the end of the horse is drawn really badly. <laughs> That's what I think. I need to find that picture for this. And um, so Chagoras itself is a feudal world. It's dominated by kingdoms. Uh, it's also called Mundus Planus, I think. But that might be the yeah Mundus Planus is what the uh, the Imperium yeah Imperium call it. The people who live there call it Chagoras. Or the ones who won. You'll see what I mean in the end. So there's lots of kingdoms, but there's also uh, steppe tribes in this uh, great planet. And it's actually, they only have one continent, I think, don't they? Like one big F-off continent. Yes, giant. Big boy. And 
Chagoras itself at the time of the 30th millennium is essentially they have black powder weapons. <laughs> they're not, they've, they've kind of not got much going for them. And uh, it was in the sort of western end of the big continent on Chagoris called the Empty Quarter. It's where the fifth Primarch roared in and he crashed down into this sort of massive steppe land. And he was found by a tribe and they actually adopted him. They took him in and this was all under the leadership of his now adoptive father called Ong Khan. I actually can't remember the name of Jagatai's like original name. I have his name. Do you know his original his, name? His original name was Ketugu Suwogu. Ketugu Suwogu. Well, that was his uh, given name. He didn't, mm. unlike Perse Rabu, he didn't recall a previous name. Suwogu. Owo. Oh, no, it's a It's just among us. So he was taken in by this steppe tribe. He was... You know, he was raised upon the steppe land and it was a tribalistic life. He was hunting, riding. I feel sorry for that poor horse. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> does anyone know um, what's the boss in Elden Ring? Is it Radigan? When he's like, no, the no, horse. Radan, Radan. <laughs> Radan, sorry, Radan. To be honest, the horse that's had the worst time in video games is probably a Pona from Opening of Time. Like, she's been through a lot. How many times can you kick a horse? Leave her <laughs> he's been through a lot. To be I, fair to Radan's horse, he, he learned gravity magic, so the horse wasn't in pain. <laughs> in his I don't, spare time, I don't think I don't think Jagged Icon learned how to use gravity magic. I think that horse just suffered. I know, but but let's be honest. When you see that horse, it is struggling. It, it does not look good. And so Jagged Icon is struggling horse, very say. And other pastime of the step tries was war, as we all know. Nothing makes. Uh, step life better than war and this all so he was growing up in this kind of tribe he was he had a life of uh the the key word was freedom because on the step tries with the wind in his hair uh good old jagatai he was he loved the kind of uh open plain so to say it was literally it sung in his blood and all of this was glorious until the day when his father ong khan was poisoned by their rival tribe. And this was not good. I, just, I hope everyone agrees with that. Not good. And so, I was a nice guy too. I know, that's the shocking part. <laughs> Which is like, oh no. Just, There's as, not many Primarchs who have nice dads. When they do, they're actually really nice. <laughs> I know, that's actually kind of heartwarming. I think Gilliman's got the nice one too. And, yeah, um, Connor. Connor was a cool guy. So Jagatai, he rallies his tribe and they utterly crush their rivals, but they actually absorb the people into his own. So he starts growing. And these are now coined the Talskars. They are, I can't remember exactly what Talskar means, but I think it's something to do with uh, a belonging sense of the, obviously scars will come up a lot, funny enough, when we talk about Jagatai Khan. That'll be a thing to look forward in the future. Love a scar. And, uh, but... This was not just uh, a life in the steppes which was ignored. So to the east, the Palatines, which are the city empires, uh, they were they heard rumours of this like kind of growing horde and they attempted to kill Jagatai because, you know, don't let a threat build up. Good luck. It, it did not go well. But so they actually no. they attempted to kill him quite a few times, but there was one attempt where I think even, in, like, they actually had an avalanche that, that tries to kill him as well. They tried to literally 
bury him alive. And mm. many of Jagatai's friends and fellow Chagorians of his, like his honor guard, they were killed. But he lived, literally like Kill Bill, he like punched his way out of the ground. And he joined back up with his Talisgars and he bec- he was then proclaimed the Great Khan and he united all the tribes of the steppe. And with a massive army of thousands of Chagorian steppe horsemen, you can imagine how terrifying that is. Uh, obviously, if anyone hasn't noticed yet, this is slightly a reference to a certain... Uh, Genghis Khan or like Genghis no. Khan and uh, well, perhaps yeah. the only time in Warhammer history the Warhammer guy's a lot nicer than the real one <laughs> that's actually true and they launch themselves at the Palantine and they completely even though this was an age of black powder technology they outmaneuvered uh, their forces completely. They they had um, heavy plate kind of traditional. Obviously, it's a reference to medieval medieval uh, warfare. You can imagine. I, I think of poor Hungary, <laughs> Kingdom of Hungary. They uh, had walls as well. Like J- Jagatai and his guys were living in tents in the in the plains, and these guys had like a big fortress sort of thing. Funny enough, we're going to mention walls right now. <laughs> so <laughs> they as they approach these walled cities, uh, Jagatai made one offer which is surrender or death and so the ones that did surrender they were treated generally quite well but then obviously the ones that rejected it were annihilated and he conquered all of Chagoris and but the interesting about Jagatai sorry the interesting thing about Jagatai was that the lifestyle of the kind of horde Mongolian uh, style like steppe existence was actually something he didn't give up it was he decided to kind of i think he's even said that he might be you might uh know this andy he's thinking i think he says it in the book like what would happen if you'd conquered all of the kingdoms or the palatine i think jagatai said that we just release them and let them go and then maybe conquer them mm. again one day i think it's well, like he, he also the timing of the emperor meeting him was really good because he he'd taken over the whole world and he was like i don't want to be the guy in charge running it i want to be out hunting and doing my own thing so the emperor comes around and is like bro i mean son um so i'm doing this thing called the great crusade um i need some generals do you mind getting your guys out into the galaxy and you know bringing some worlds into compliance he's like galaxy yes please and he he willingly went no i'm, I'm not going to be in charge anymore emperor can do that and i can do what i want to do and i can achieve his goal which is what i want which is to bring humanity back together as a cohesive whole that all follows the same rules and can be free very much so so he was he's like free-spirited isn't he in his own way and he the kind of lifestyle he really wanted to have was actually not it was so far from what an emperor figure Mm. was like he actually kind of funny enough disliked emperor figures Mm. and the aesthetics of Jagatai, because this is kind of... He, he definitely has one of the cooler... All the Primarchs kind of look cool, if you know what I mean. But this is... Jagatai's got a really unique... Um, like, even his war gear, I mentioned a bit. His, his war gear is, like, some of the best out there. But himself, he was, uh, first point, enormous, as we say. That's going to come up a lot. He had slightly tan skin, uh, Mongolian, Asian features, and his war gear, which is my favourite part, which is essentially it's obviously has it has no place in a futuristic setting of like mm-hmm. sci-fi fantasy but he just wears he's like the proper like is it tal uh talwar he says talwar blade he has like 
he like he wears like furs and stuff like that. He has a top knot and things. He has a the he, scar. he does have like um a big armor plate, but it is like very stylized after Asian Asian cultures where it's like the folding plates over each other, and it does have like a kind of um like fanged helmet with like um like a plume at the top. But it's it's not very often seen in the artwork. But he does that have that for like. When they went into space, they needed to wear helmets and stuff. But otherwise, he loves his leathers, he loves his fur, etc. He looks really yeah. cool. He's not he's not heavily armored like Perturabo because Jagatai you can't hit him. <laughs> Jagatai, uh, as we say here, he is very fast. He is perhaps the fast. He can move the fastest out of he all is of the, the fastest. Primer. And he, am speed. He, he is speed. He's also got the best one liners. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. he's got a, he's Ooh. quick on his feet and he's got a quick Although, tongue as well. Lorgar had a pretty good one at Cal. At Kalf. Yeah. Oh, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't got to that part in my own <laughs> law stuff yet. Shame on me. Well, when we get to Lorgar and Gilliman, I'll maybe Enlighten. we'll bring it up. Enlighten Lorgar versus the Chad Khan. That's for the next episode. <laughs> if you are uh, watching, we also actually have done a podcast episode on the White Scars, so we go even mm-hmm. into more like greater I, detail. So definitely, I suppose check that we out. should mention that after this episode and the following one, we will do each Primark individually. So don't worry, we will go into them into more detail. Oh yeah, this is definitely. a primer. This this is just for if you you know this this is the uh, starter, shall we say, the entree. So um, for Jagatai's personality, he is cunning. He's very. He's quite, I wouldn't say quiet is the right word, but he's very... Reserved. Reser- reserved is much better than what I put. And he's also very wise as well. He was... People underestimating his intelligence was actually one of his strong suits. Mm. He wasn't... People obviously thought of him as like the barbarian, like horse lord or whatever. But then it's kind of like in our own history where people don't actually realise that the Mongolians at the time they were like conquering actually were the same level of technology. So it was like, oh man... He was very much the kind of, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? He's not underestimated. He's underestimated often. And he's also, he had a very big dislike of the idea of empires itself. I think, even deep in that, the idea of stagnation and weakness Mm. that comes from, uh, we'll say here, building walls. He hated walls. And... uh, it literally, his personality trait I put here is he hates walls. <laughs> and he also hated people showing off and being like, look at me, look at me, <clears throat> Fulgrim. Um, so, yeah, he also didn't like to to project how cool he was and how good he was because he was like, you'll see when you need to see it. If, if we're gonna I think he has like giving, giving away your it. strength when it didn't yeah, need exactly. to be. Uh-huh. And uh, for his inspiration, funny enough, he slightly resembles... Uh, uh, Genghis Khan, sorry, Chinggis Khan. Uh, if anyone did catch that, very brutal Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, very, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, but his name Jagatai is a play on uh, Chagatai, which is the name of one of Genghis Khan's sons. This one, I think, is a reference to him being of a more, uh, I wouldn't say peaceful, but he was much more diplomatic compared to mm. his father. So there's kind of a reference to that. And for Primark number six. I will pass over to Eli to talk about the furry, the furry boy. I'm just going to say it, hey. the furry boy. Hey. So Primark number six, take it away. Hey, let me get him in. Hey, let me get one too. Hey, let me hold one. Yeah, he he that right there. What the dog doing? Yeah, Lehman Russ, the Wolf King, whose Ooh. keyword we had was fury. Uh, Russ, of course, in his pod, came down, landed on the death world of Fenris. Uh, this place was not 
nearly as nice as Jagoras. Uh, Fenris is probably one of the harshest worlds in Warhammer. Maybe mm. that might. Uh, I mean, debatable, I guess, but it's 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 certainly up there. It has uh, very extreme seasons of freezing cold or uh, magma shooting up from the ice, and it's, it, there's krakens and big giant monsters, and everything is really crazy. But the people love it, so good for them. Uh, but Russ lands, and he is then raised by wolves, like uh, Romulus and all the other guys <laughs> from history. In mythology, uh, so he's raised by wolves, by a mother, a thunder wolf, with her cubs, and eventually, one day, a tribes, a tribe of guys come by, and they basically kill all of the wolves. They get in a fight, and they notice Russ is a human being after Russ has like killed almost all of them barehanded as like a ten year old kid. Not even, I mean, he was probably like I don't know two or three by now, but he's, I mean, mm. for Primark, that's probably around. 10 to 12, maybe. <laughs> um, so yeah, he kills most of them, but then they see, oh, this is a dude, let's not kill him. And he goes with them, along with two of the wolves that did survive, uh, Gary and Frecky, which would accompany Russ into the Great Crusade and onwards. I'm not sure how that worked. I guess just Imperium Massive technology, commas. keeping his dogs alive, or what? Like Massive corners, <laughs> bowls of water, and kibble. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, immortal kibble <laughs> but yeah gary and frecky go with russ and he joins the rust tribe and as he ages he quickly becomes part of the wolf guard for the king there the king also gives him the name of lehman lehman of the rust which is how lehman gets his name and lehman wins hundreds of battles and eventually becomes the king after the king dies of old age something very uncommon in a place like fenris but when you have lehman rust killing all your enemies for you it's pretty doable to die of old age. That's like that's that's, that's honestly basically it. <laughs> he, uh, mm. he becomes Wolf King of Fenris, spreads his influence across the world, and eventually the Emperor comes to pick him up, pick up his kid from the soccer game. Finally, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the harshest um, uh, what's it? Not reception. The har- the harshest like play nursery the- nursery <laughs> the harshest nursery in the galaxy. Yeah. He was found really early on, if I remember correctly. Um, he was the around second the same Primark time as Ferris. Yeah, technically the third, but uh, well, yeah, technically. <laughs> yeah, he when the emperor found him though, he was he came as like a cloaked, mysterious figure, and challenged Rust. So they had three challenges to go through. Uh, one was eating, and one was drinking. One was fighting. Rust actually beats the emperor in a drinking contest. <laughs> And mm-hmm. he beats the emperor in a eating contest as well, and now all the food and drink on this nice feast is eaten up. But everyone's still loving it. And the, the final in a pig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, 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 the final challenge, though, was that of combat. And of course, the emperor beats Russ, knocking him out cold. And when he comes to, he has nothing but respect for the emperor and is willing to go with him. That's lucky boy. Yeah, uh, it's a lot more stuff in the. Yeah, a lot. lot Russ's stuff is a bit. Um, if everyone hasn't probably guessed as well, there is a slight Norse uh, Viking slight, twist. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's like. Um, oh, as his aesthetics, can you describe his uh, aesthetics to. Uh, yeah. Our he's he's uh, similar to the Gon. He kind of puts off this 
ambience of barbarism and uh, stupidity. I guess Khan, the Khan doesn't look stupid, but a lot of people think Lehman is stupid. He hides it very well, though, because uh, he's always described as being very cunning and very smart. He has fangs, of course, fangs and claws and the long, luscious, blonde locks of the Viking. <laughs> he wears his frost armor that is kind of a gray, light bluish, with runes etched into it to protect him against magics and whatnot. He wears the pelt of a wolf upon his back, and he wields the sword no- named Mjolnar. How original. Wow, um, where, where they got yeah. that from. <laughs> he also has the axe of Hellwinter, and then he gets a very fancy weapon later on, but we won't talk about that till later, I guess. He has like four weapons. Doesn't he also have Krakenmoor, which is made from the teeth of a kraken? I think so. I think he has the most amount of artifacts of all Primarchs. He likes a good weapon. He's a massive fan of swords and axes. There is a reason for that, though, which we'll get into. He has very just wolfish features. Very, He looks like a Viking mixed with a wolf, and that's that's basically it. Got the cunning eyes. Yeah, lots of ruins. It's a shame. Sorry. No, I was was done. It's a shame one of the coolest Primarchs is in charge of the worst legion. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone's so mean to the space, I like the space wolves. Wolves, I like them too. He used to be um, the interesting. Thousand Sons. I am a Thousand Sons uh, player. <laughs> but, um, Nerd. The, uh, Nerd. I don't. I don't care. I got magic. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I thought was it interesting? Like Lehman Ross used to be. It's a weird part of the law. Like some bits of law, he's blonde, and some parts he's ginger. Mm. It like it. It's actually like one of the biggest, I oh, guess, well, law crimes. It's actually a law oh, crime. Jeez. Like in um, like early on he was blonde, and then like in mm-hmm. the Primark book, sometimes he's ginger. So don't. There's a little bit of discrepancy to his. Depends what his like hair care routine is at the time. <laughs> like, yeah. just, like Just soaking yeah. it in mud or whatever. Something he is quite blonde in all the horse heresy pictures yeah he's quite well in a lot of the official stuff he's blonde but then mm-hmm. i guess in the book he's like ginger so it's, it's confusing yeah. he also looks nordic as well he's nordic as hell his look the imperium's yeah. advanced enough that hair dye probably isn't <laughs> beyond them knowing the imperium they were probably like we need to purge all the gingers oh, <laughs> i wouldn't put it yes. past them oh, gosh. Oh, <laughs> can't, have, can't have too it's much over, diversity over <laughs> yes. i think we have, a, we have a small bit about his inspiration i think as well yeah. We have here, um, he's inspired by Kievan Rus. Kievan Rus. Yeah. The Vikings, the Vikings who settled northern Russia in the late Middle Ages, uh, possibly reference to Rus's people from the tribe of Prince Rurik. Colin, you, you got anything to say there? Yeah, you might, we're, we're hoping you might uh, <laughs> illuminate a little bit on the Kievan Rus if anyone's interested in that. I mean, it's kind of kind of hit the nail on the head with it, with the Norse settlers of that general area of the world. Uh, if you'd like a little bit of further things I wish they would do, which is part of why I don't like the wolves, uh, there could be something about the Varangian Guard, who were the uh, v- Norsemen who essentially served the Byzantine, the Roman Eastern mm. Empire. Uh Oh, who's the? There's a name inside the. Is it Hagia Sophia in uh, Istanbul? Oh yeah. yeah. There's like yeah. there's someone who's written in Nordic uh, uh, runes. I think was it like something like uh, was it Frinia was here or something like Halfdan I, yeah. was here? Yeah, oh, yeah, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah, it was. It was like no one translated it. Like 
for th- like over a thousand <laughs> years, and by the time we did, we we're like Viking seeking. This could be some cultural thing, and then it's just like yeah, like Hrothgar was here or something <laughs> like, that. like the equivalent of it's the something stu- in a bathroom oh, stall. Awesome. Like uh, it, it's the stupidest thing because of you know language over time. We didn't know what it meant. Oh, humanity. I, I, like, I like I like that particular point though because especially of Lehman Russ, you mentioned earlier a little bit how I think that people underestimate him because well, I think Eli said you said people think he's stupid, but like the thing about the space was to get a bad rap, but Lehman in particular he plays up the the aesthetic more than he actually is. He kind of for the sake of his legion he plays up the the kind of Fenrisian element, and there's this there's even this thing with like um. When Horus, one of the Primarchs, meets him because he's oh, a second yeah. properly found Primarch, and you know, we will talk about Horus in the next one. But basically, imagine Michael Corleone if he was a Primarch. You know, he's a gang boss originally, and then he's quite prim and proper. And all of a sudden, he meets his first brother, and he's just eating like meat with his hands in the ship he's in <laughs> with the Emperor, and he's like drinking, and then he's he has a chat with him and he's got a weird way of speaking he's like you speak funny he's like i only learned your language two days ago and you're like oh okay so he's actually quite smart but he kind of plays up the barbarism of his it's implied that he fakes his accent to be more rougher than it really is so he Mm. blend so he kind of blends in more with his fenrisian slash you know basically viking um Mm. soldiers essentially uh he's it, it, Lehman Rust, if you are new to Warhammer, Lehman Rust is, if you like Space Wolves, like they, you love Space Wolves. People who play yeah, and they yeah. learn about Space Wolves, because even reading some of their books, they're kind of like, they're basically fantasy books rather than sci fi, mm. especially the ones on Fenris. Shout out to. They're weirdly Tolkien esque in some respects. Very much so. They're kind of. Uh, shout out to Ragnar Blackmane, uh, the first book oh, of yeah. his one because i read that and i it's literally a fantasy book there's barely any sci-fi until the very end and uh i enjoyed that one quite a lot but uh space wars unfortunately there's there's too much wolf and not enough viking uh there are no wolves the, on fenris that's yeah, a very- that's a joke we'll have to explain one day <laughs> but sadly we move on from the barbarian the wolf king lehman russ and we turn now to hi there is there a project you're working on i know more than you all right. Our seventh Primarch, so this is Rogel Dawn, keyword fortify. There's literally no better word for him. I'm not going to have any arguments. <laughs> Buzzcut is a better word for Rogel Dawn. <laughs> he fortified his haircut. His Mustache. <laughs> oh, he would look cool. Lemmy from Motorhead. <laughs> he would look cool with a beard, to be honest. Um, so the story of Primarch number seven was that he landed on the planet of Inwit. Uh, this is not going to be subtle again in the oh, reference. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Warhammer. And the planet of Inwit is kind of this... None of the Primarchs seem to land on nice worlds a lot of time, but Inuit's kind of kind of similar to Fenris, where it's literally an ice planet. And it is... Uh, yeah, it's just bitterly cold. And it's actually full of, like, sort of similar to Fenris, where there's, like, weird kind of creatures that are a little bit uh dangerous is not like is not enough to kind of explain how bad it is there there's a story about there's like uh two recruits trying to join the imperial fist chapter 
and they literally get attacked by this thing that emerges from the ice and it's like multi-limbed and it's like it like skates and it runs like full pelt across the uh ice and that, that's always in my dreams um enough about that so rogel his name was rogel dawn and this was a name given to him by a uh tribe slash clan system that inhabit the the uh space on inuit and Inuit itself is actually a lot of it's quite mysterious. Unfortunately, it's not one of the better fleshed-out worlds of Primarchs, but there are some things that we can glean. So they have like a kind of clan system where people often on the planet like they roam uh, around like these huge like ice tunnels, and it's actually kind of I think that kind of imagery is quite cool to be honest. Mm. And they, there's obviously war between tribes and things like that, but and there are some cities like that are deep beneath the ice, but the people of this world are sort of technologically advanced to a certain degree. They actually uh, have expanded beyond Inuit, but funny enough, for some reason, they actually still live the same way they yeah. would, would live around Inuit. a planet where like the sun is kind of dying and it's like uh, it's just on its last legs and they're like yeah this uh, this is a bit cold and then sun's not helping it's not very bright it is is bitterly cold but funny enough that bitterly coldness shall we say uh seeps into the very people of this world themselves so rogel dawn he was actually adopted by a man who he would actually he didn't know he wasn't necessarily related to him, but he's actually his adoptive grandfather, who was the mm. leader of House Dawn. That's where he obviously gets his name, Dawn, uh, as his last name. And funny enough, I think even though Rogel Dawn himself, obviously it's like a, it's a bitter world and the people obviously, they have to live in harsh environment. They survive, they're survivors. They are, they are people who endure. But uh, it's implied that his grandfather was actually quite a nice figure to uh rogel mm. so he looked after this you know super soldier amongst his uh, ranks uh he was he eventually became the leader of uh house dawn and the clan and uh house dawn themselves actually it's kind of like game of thrones in a way where one house like rules these all the kingdoms and it's like house targaryen essentially but without mm. the without the uh the inter sibling love <laughs> but um so dawn was very much a kind of almost statesman slash warrior king figure and he even was he actually became the leader of this planet over decades and he would rule over like a kind of a, almost a mini pocket empire he was an emperor literally. he literally was Before an emperor. emperor and uh his kind of story was uh, like, it's even stated like if the emperor had never found Rogel, he would have been fine essentially. And mm. Rogel's quite a well balanced human bit. He's actually he's almost the most human in a way Primarch, I think, because a lot of them are quite flawed. There's a oh. there's a trend of like flaws in the Primarchs, but Rogel seems to be more like he's actually kind of just like an enormous human in a way. Could I, I, could I mention thing. something t- tied to that with his sure, grandfather? Sure. Uh, there was a thing that basically when his grandfather died. Um, Rogel Dawn had this blanket he would put over his bed because it was, you know, it was his grandfather's uh, because it was quite cold. And throughout his life, he always kept the blanket from his grandfather as a reminder of how he raised him. So I thought that was like a nice little touch with Rogel Dawn, where every time when he went to bed, which wasn't often because he's a Primarch, he doesn't really need to sleep much, he'd have his grandfather's like blanket on his bed. And I was like, oh, it's like a nice little human touch to his character. I, I like that part because it's quite. Uh, 
human. You know, because there are all these super soldiers, but it's a nice humanizing moment. But to say that as well, Rogel was not any pussy bitch. I'm going to say This guy was um, an absolute unit of a man. So he his combat style was often even just... The whole ethos was endurance. So he could take pain and, you know... He would take, you know, he could take a thousand cuts and he would still win. Patience was his greatest weapon. And so for the look of Rogel Dawn, so if you were to like, you know, oh, which Primark is Rogel Dawn? Rogel Dawn, point one again, enormous. He is a absolute uh, unit of a man. He has very like sort of pale skin, described as like Celtic features. His um, kind of like Fulgrim, he actually has white hair, but whereas Fulgrim is this, you know, long flowing uh, gorgeous hair, so, you know. Praise to Eli for uh, his his favorite Ooh. Primark. Uh, Rogel Dawn has the very like short cut kind of uh, you know no nonsense uh, look I, to him. I read once somewhere that someone said that he reminded them of like uh, U.S. Army like um, trainers, you know, like drill sergeants. Like that's his aesthetic. <laughs> like buzz cut, very short cropped hair, no nonsense, very tall and stoic and barking orders. Like that's kind of the aesthetic in a way. Definitely, he's not like the he's not like a pretty boy, but he's very much a like he's kind of looks like an average person where he's not ugly, he's not handsome either. He's just kind of very stern looking, kind of like literally I say grandfather looking man. He's he's not obviously older than any of the Primarchs, but he kind of he he projects in a way like being the oldest, a seniority, very much so. And his uh his personality is stern. He is tactical. He's not the best with his emotions. He doesn't not understand emotions he's not he's not very... as bad as Perturabo at least no he's, he's better than the lion <laughs> yeah. he's better than Perturabo and the lion like he understands people's emotions he's just not very expressive there's probably not a lot to express within himself to be honest he's very cut and dry he's also yeah he's very stoic he's, in, he's a very enduring Beautiful man as well very much so he's kind of he's, he's a perfect soldier really I think perfect soldier Shout out to Chaster Master Valrak if he ever hears this, because he is he I definitely didn't think much of Perth Rabo before, but the more you like kind of read about him, you learn about him, you realise like, oh man, he's he's actually probably he's, he's like he's one of things like he's on paper, he's the probably the best Primark on paper. But mm-hmm. I'm also like he's Whatever you say. I know. No. Oh I, well maybe Gilliman to be fair on paper might be the best. But uh he's he's pretty he's extremely um not like well useful, but you know what I mean. He's very competent, I'll say. And uh, the inspiration actually for Rogel Dawn is the word Rogel, which is a possible play on the word uh, Regal, possibly. Because whenever you see um, Rogel Dawn's armor, it is you know it's it's gold. it is ornate golden, you know, eagle. Is the only one who just armor. goes like, "I'm copying Dad." Gold. He does like his mini emperor look. He's got the imperial drip. Drip. He's got his. Uh, he's not trying to riz, but he's rizzing. Let's just say in the oh plural. <laughs> I'm just putting that in there. And um, but also the word dawn means castle or stronghold in Old English, as well as uh, his legion. Sorry, chapter. Should we say now uh, the Imperial Fist Legion that are created from him uh, are the Imperial Fists, and the word fist in Irish is also. Uh, dawn also means fist in Irish, you know, Gaelic and things like that as well. So there's again not the most subtlest of nods, but he's very much a pretty. He's he's the on the nose, but he gets the job done kind of Primark. 
But having said all that nice stuff about a nice Primark, we now go to perhaps the most horrifying uh, human-like creature that's ever existed in the Warhammer setting. This is probably... This is this is the one most He's interesting. Him. I know I'm doing it, I'm doing it because this is true. But this is one of the most, I guess, uh, flawed human beings ever. I swear you would be of more use to me if I skinned you and turned your skin into a lampshade, or fashioned you into a piece of high-end luggage. I can even add you to my collection. <laughs> so, so this is Primark number eight, and this is Conrad Kurz. Keyword: oh. terror. So uh, the eighth Primark. Uh, which would eventually become Conrad Kurz. He actually, I think he, Conrad Kurz is someone who, uh, funny enough, he will, he remembers his name, not like Perturabo. He actually remembers it from a a vision. So it's kind of a bit different, but he uh, exits the warp and he rockets towards the planet called Nostromo. Nostromo, I think is also a link to a book, but it's also the name of, is it Alien? The ship in Alien is the Nos- Nostromo. Nostromo. So there's not Nas- Nostrama. There's an A and an O. So it's Nostromo, but in Alien it's Nostromo. Well, it's a it's a nice link there because you definitely get the same vibes here because this is horrifying. So <laughs> Nostromo itself is an extremely like it is almost uh, midnight black. The world is extremely dark. Its sun is is not even visible through the clouds. It is full of smog, pollution. It's actually awful. And it's has very few has like five main kind of hive cities that exist on this world where humanity lives. And in the middle of uh, one of these cities on Nostromo, the uh, eighth Primarch crash lands and he emerges from his capsule and is immediately set upon by someone trying to kill him. And Oh no! So he he rockets sorry into the atmosphere. Sorry, he lands in the crust of the planet. I think he was, doesn't he yeah. exit in the magma? No, he, yeah, he, he has to like li- crawl out. He literally crawls. And also, in Astromo itself, the world is filled with uh, lots of rare gems and minerals. And so, the eighth primal actually claws himself out, like you know, blooding his fingers, and he struggles. And he when he emerges, sorry, he literally emerges out of the hole, and he's immediately set upon by someone trying to kill him. And the reason for that is because Nostromo is essentially a lawless hellscape. It is, um, think of like a mafia kind of run, like crime city, but on 11. It's midnight black in the streets and it's just all dripping with, you know, smog and pollution. It's awful. And even like his first instinct, like first human he ever sees in the world, the eighth Primarch, tries to kill him and he immediately again because he's a primarch snaps him in half you know he folds him like laundry shall we say um and he there's no food so he actually consumes him and yeah, that's when he starts story. to see yeah he's actually like the images and like the memories of people when he consumes their brain material which actually most all space marines can do actually yeah they can all do it it's quite a bit of a weird i'm not you know yikes and the eighth primarch so he kind of his unique thing about him, he's growing up alone in this uh, place of Nostromo and is a lawless, crime-ridden place and he has no one to look after him and he kind of learns by observing humanity. He sees like the cruelty and just the awful way that like, the Nostromians like, treat each other. Even though their skin, he kind of resembles them in a way, but we'll talk about that in a bit. But 
they're like kind of all very pale people that their eyes are their their pupils are so large i think that they you can barely see out the whites of their eyes yeah they're kind of a little bit um off looking and uh they he very much is alone growing up in this terrifying place and he is plagued by visions throughout his childhood and into like adolescence and that's how he learns his name he's kind of he literally raises himself so conrad curs and he kind of doesn't really understand like why he's here again he doesn't he he has certain like little bits in his mind like visions like filling in the gaps but he feels within him like many of the primarchs feel like an innate sense of like they have like a duty to like all of them eventually like sort of conquer their worlds a lot of time they feel like a sense of domination or like a, there's a will to exert and for poor old conrad his thing was justice and this is where he turns into something called the night haunter figure because he learns an interpretation of justice from a people who do not have justice and in the night yeah in the night he uh he very much learns that the only thing to ensure what his twisted like form of justice is is fear and so he becomes the night haunter figure where he dominates he eventually dominates all of the world in astramo in a rule of uh tyranny and fear of the night haunter creature that will punish people and by any crime i think there's a there's an awful part where someone wishes to let's say um take their own as as i imply here you know end their journey shall we say and that is a crime to him and so he then punishes and tortures that person in such a way that no crime would ever be committed on Nostromo. Mm. And he eventually, after decades, creates this very sort of strange... I say strange because strange doesn't even cut it because the people of Nostromo are so deathly afraid of stepping out of line because any crime is punished by extreme torture. Like, he becomes a tyrant, yeah. He becomes a sort of weird tyrant king, but then also in a strange place when he when he's then names himself like king of Nostromo and all the hive cities, he still personally hunts people who <laughs> who uh, do wrong, yeah. which is awful. Like you know, he makes time for it. And but funny enough, the society sort of transforms into actually the best version of itself. Funny enough, obviously, but mm. it was done through horrific means and to be fair to conrad as well if you were alone on a planet where like to give there's a story about two of the night lords who eventually become part of the legion as kids and they're like brothers and they're just barely hanging on and they find another boy and i think for a while they live with him to be like it's okay you can live with us and then they uh, one day they get fed up with him crying all the time and they kill him and eat him because they're like oh it's better than eating rats and it's like I don't know how else you would like manage to get that planet under control. I mean, it's it's a terrible situation to be in. Uh, Nostromo had armies, you know. He's on on his own. Nostromo sucks, basically. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's awful. And so, if you were to, it's the aesthetics of should we say Conrad Kurz slash the Night Haunter. So, Conrad Kurz himself is again enormous. He is a towering. A demigod figure. His skin is extremely pale, waxy. He is has sort of Eastern European, goth. very very much gothic kind of Eastern European <laughs> Eastern European features. Uh, mainly, many people describe him as like gaunt looking. So it's even more terrifying when you see him. He doesn't he doesn't kind of command the same awe that a lot of the other Primarchs do when you Almost see them. Almost malnourished, if that were possible for a Primarch. She commands you to void your bowels. 
<laughs> Very, like, to be honest, that is law accurate, 100%. And the personality of Conrad is, I think the best word is like skitterish. He's kind of, his mind very much, he was haunted by visions. Tormented. Tormented yeah. by visions his whole life. And when he like ate people because he had no food or didn't know what he was doing, he he would had the minds of basically criminals of like a awful planet then sort of absorbed into himself. So he's a very much a sadistic, he's a terrifying, a slightly weirdly self-righteous character. He's he's obsessed with, there's, a, there's an innate sense of justice within him, but obviously it's been perverted by what Nostromo believes about that. One of the most tragic characters yeah, as well. Yeah, he's, he's a very broken man, but his legion, to be fair, their ascetics themselves, they kind of don their armour with like icons of fear. They have their whole... Uh, he yeah, he like he learned quote unquote learned that the only way to control humans was fear and the inspiration for good old comrade curs is actually from possibly the novella called heart of darkness by joseph conrad another uh, conrad uh, yeah, yeah. makes sense this is actually a story about a former ivory trader in the congo by if there was a man named like kurtz and he like, rules over the native population as a charismatic demigod kind of inspiring you know a you know an outsider coming in and ruling over the people but he's also inspired by good old vlad the impaler which <laughs> which i think if anyone sees him or when you read the story you're like that's a obvious hit i don't know if colin wants to give a i'm pretty sure most people have heard of vlad the impaler but colin if you might want to give a little bit of a cheeky history about vlad because i know you love your history there's, of course, you know, he's the guy who inspired Dracula uh, when he, in response to the Turkic invasions of Europe after they got past the what was left of the Byzantine Empire, uh, I believe he impaled 50, like, I don't know how many. It was a lot of people he put on spikes. One is enough. <laughs> it's sign- and it yeah. was significantly more than one. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, uh, so Vlad is, um, was it Vo- is he Voivo of Romania? Or- what was it called? Valakia, sorry. Voivo of Valakia. Yeah. And uh, Vlad, Vlad, sorry, not Vlad, wrong setting. Vlad von Karstein <laughs> is not in this one. Sorry, Conrad Kurz takes a lot of inspiration from that historical figure. In fact, a lot of the Primarchs are kind of, they're obviously historically inspired, in, inspired sorry, by uh, like you know, great generals or certain motifs or writers Ooh. or art. Don't forget his biggest inspiration. Oh no, where's this going? Batman. <laughs> <laughs> that's true there's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's a joke within the community I'll see him being you know the dark knight essentially you know justice <laughs> I just uh, no, I don't want to see that Batman just a shame that he didn't meet one of his brothers and go what's your mummy's name oh my mummy's name is Erda oh mine's called Erda too we can be friends no no, no love for Conrad and Conrad's kind of actually we'll just finish very briefly on him where when he actually meets the emperor he is overtaken by a vision and tries to claw his own eyes out. So, Conrad is, mm. is, is a very tortured soul. Yeah. Um, when does he? Is that when he? When does he get the vision of what will become of him? At what point in his life does he know? He what always his saw fate that. Is is it often. from the very beginning? Right. Yeah. So, uh, if you're new to Warhammer, uh, Conrad Kurz was always tortured by the vision of his own death. An assassin ordered by the emperor, so he, because he can see into the future. He can sort of see into the future. Some of the other primarchs can, who are like uh, psychically gifted, so they have like sort of pseudo magic powers. And um, he 
but this one was involuntary. He didn't choose to like peer into it. It was like kind of torture. But he, he saw it his entire life like at multiple points. And so Conrad always believed that fate was set because he was destined to die at that time. But um, speaking of another Primarch who saw visions of the future. Boys, you saved Christmas. Also, I'm Jesus. Thanks, Jesus. It's time to go to heaven, my child. But the vision of this man is glorious indeed. We have Sanguinius. Keyword, nobility. So this mm-hmm. is probably this is the pre- this is gives Fulgrim a run for his money in terms of pretty boys. He's uh, the opposite of Conrad, basically. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. So Sanguinius is, I think he's, he's a lot of people's favorite uh, Primarch. He's Primarch of the Blood Angels. If you're in war, if you kind of are new to Warhammer, and uh, you'll you'll see why he's kind of eventually so beloved when we do a episode on him. But just a brief little bit about Sanguinius himself. So. His story was, again, the gestation capsule, it roars out of the warp, and he lands on the planet called Baal Secundus, which actually is the second moon, or funny enough, the planet called Baal Prime. Um, and Baal itself is kind of, if you imagine Mars, but bigger. And it's a kind of like a red waste. It's literally described like the red wastes of Baal. It's a very much a kind of rusty hellscape it's kind of backstory is that uh humanity previously did live in like orbital stations above ball and then there was a civil war during the age of strife and sort of all this like massive metallic ship they all crashed down and that's the reason why ball and bar secundus are like full of essentially red dust and the people who live on ball uh they're not going to have a good time so <laughs> And I'll explain why. So the uh, ninth Primarch, he lands on Baal Secundus itself and he awakens to this heavily irradiated kind of mist. And it's like a red um, tornado of dust around him. It's very much a hellscape, literally is a death world. And he eventually comes upon uh, other humans. And these are people who are, they're like decked out in like radiation gear and it's very shocking for him when he first sees people because when they see him, they see this glorious golden child with angels' wings on his back. So uniquely amongst all his brothers, Sanguinius has wings, which I think is cheating, to be honest. Uh, it doesn't sound very fair. Yeah. I mean, like all of all the abilities like Pertrabo gets can see Eye of Terror at all times and Sanguinius gets wings. Isn't it implied that it might actually be a mutation? Baal, like it's it's not clear if it was a gift or it's something that just happened when he was on Baal. It's implied that the it's a it is a mutation that is not natural, but it was again. It, I think the emperor yeah, right. says the, em, the emperor's like it's it's acceptable. I think he says, if I remember correctly. But um, as we all know, radiation gives you wings. <laughs> that's not like the Red Bull slogan. <laughs> not like yeah. a draggled soul reaver wings. It's like nice, beautiful angel wings. Like, oh, that's yeah. nice, actually. Oh, cool. I'm going to go to bar and get irradiated. I might get myself some wings. Yeah. So Doesn't work. Oh. So the people of the fun of the bar-like tribesmen, they actually find him, and he actually kills what's called like a red, like a kind of a red red rad sorry rad scorpion sort of creature and he kills it with his bare hands and they see this child and he's like surviving amongst this um 
like irradiated like he, he shouldn't ex- uh, you know a human shouldn't be able to tolerate that but they can obviously see he is special and he's taken in by the barlight tribesmen and they very much are because of the way they have to survive on this world they're actually quite a tight-knit community area so in obviously the worlds where you land on shape you quite a lot i always think of like rogel dawn's one with sanguinius like rogel dawn's one is quite icy and so obviously he's quite an icy man but funny enough even though sanguinius lands on this like hellscape the people of baal are actually quite loving and they have like aspects of nobility there's a kind of there's an implied um this is very deep law here but it's implied like within the warp there are like like psychic angels that fight for the soul of Baal and they actually influence the people who live there, who have lived there in the past and who will live there in the future. And so there's a kind of culture of nobility and art and uh, expression in this place. But also Sanguinis is not just an angel looking innocent boy. He is an absolute chad of a warrior too. So he leads his people to fight off these mutant hordes. So these are the people who succumb to radiation and they just basically turn into zombies, essentially. And All like ghouls. Pretty much. And he he, he just uh, he unites the people of Baal as tribes all together and uh, he leads them to purge. Yeah, funny enough, he's a nice guy. He actually purges the mutant hordes of this place and he manages to sort of bring a sense of um, unity and a place where actually like people again like kind of similar to fulgrim on chemos people didn't live very long on bar so actually this is the first time where people sort of have a time to express themselves and it's um he is seen as like their glorious leader and he uh he's actually famous for his kind of his oratory skills as well so a lot of the other primarchs are they're, they're generals they're, like, they're warrior kings but sanguinius is more than that he's kind of Little, he has a little bit of statesman within him, not as much as some other Primarchs, <coughs> Gilliman. Um, but Sanguinius is definitely more than just the symbol of when you look upon him. So as for the aesthetics of Sanguinius, he is B.E.A. beautiful. This is a gorgeous man. He is uh, literally the pretty, nicknamed the pretty boy in uh, Warhammer. He is quite uh, like porcelain, like pale skin, I wouldn't even know what culture to describe him as because his look is angelic. He doesn't actually look like a singular race. Like you've got sort of low, long, flowing, kind of blonde hair, like noble features. To, to be honest, I've always associated the Blood Angels with France. To be honest, because they've got like the cherubs and the kind of the 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 appreciation for art. And I feel like he reminds me of some of those like uh, depictions of like old French monarchy symbols where they have the long flowing hair and they're all like look at me i'm so pretty maybe that's just kind of like louis like the sun king in a way yeah yeah yeah. little bits little bit i think that's that's probably better than what i was thinking of because i hadn't i was going to go a bit more of a latin uh vibe Mm, to it yeah but um so even like in his like uh i said uh, penelope of war i'm gonna steal that from eli um Mm -hmm. so his uh war gear is like extreme like it's like shaped golden armor he has like a kind of leopard like style pelt around him some of the barlight tries when they lived uh in Baal. now they actually have to like hunt again like there's a theme of like weird creatures hunting <laughs> primarchs <laughs> and um they can't but, help themselves they're yeah. like that's a big meal unfortunately Baal itself is quite at the time mysterious although even in the 40th millennium the modern 
timeline. It's implied that it's kept quite stale, as in like the way. So they have like weird. Um, some some of the tribes like roam the wastes themselves, or some of them live in like weird like carved like sandstone cities, as well. Um, but sorry, for, back onto his like war gear. It's very, I would say, kind of lat. It's a little bit of a Latin um, late like v- Venetian kind of influence to it. Has like, has like a, a kind of sash going over him. It might be a bit Holy Roman Emperor uh, vibe to it as well. I'm not sure. I don't know, Colin. You might agree. Uh, what kind of the? I struggle to think of like what the best way to sum uh, up his look is. Honestly, I'd say the best way to sum it up is look up the painting Saint Michael killing the, yeah. the dragon, or not? No, mm. not that Saint the George. Demon. Yeah, just look up. Michael the Archangel, and you'll get a pretty good idea of what Sanguinius looks like. Even the Warhammer model is. Yeah, the Warhammer model, I think painting. it's actually based on uh, yeah, this exact painting. Uh, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's epic. Like, yeah. And as a fighter as well, it's pretty. A lot of the Primarchs would admit that they reckon they couldn't beat Sanguinius. He's he's arguably the the best at fighting. Even the even the more cocky Primarchs are like, I can beat anyone. I think it's Lehman Russ is like, oh, I could kill, I could kill, and I could beat, and then he goes, Sanguinius. Mm, give me some not trouble. sure. Yeah, that he's always yeah. the one that regularly is like, oh, Sanguinius, he could turn the tide of battle. Oh, he's strong. He's a uh, he's kind of as much as like Fulgham strives to perfection. I think Sanguinius almost effortless, effortlessly is there, but he's also not. He doesn't need to strive. Yeah. He's already got it. <laughs> As for the as for the personality of Sanguinius, Sanguinius is there's a reason why he's like a, a favorite primate for a lot of people because he's a very noble, kind of kind-hearted person. Like when he actually Definitely. meets the emperor, he actually begs the emperor to like because he knows what he Sanguinius can also actually see sort of visions of the future, and he was also funny enough, kind of like Conrad, plagued by the vision of his death, which he saw at the hands of Horus, which actually would turn out to be one of his closest friends during the great crusade so he also dealt with the kind of like inner struggle of the future but he didn't necessarily uh it didn't damage him internally as much as i think he implies that it's not necessarily that it's going to happen because there has been a few instances we saw something and he managed to change the course of history slightly yeah there's also the element of oh i could avert this problem because i can see it coming he thought they were more like I think dreams to him, and he also had a much healthier. Like again, he was he wasn't really raised by like a singular father figure. But he had like a family mm-hmm. unit, so he was raised with love, and he had a better way of dealing with it, shall we say? Didn't have to eat rats or people like Conrad. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't doesn't skin people alive. Um, the first person he see wasn't some guy who saw a toddler walk out of a space pod and go, "I'm yeah, gonna yeah, kill yeah. that thing." It's yummy, jeez. Yeah, it is a gr- it's still a grim, dark universe, <laughs> and mm-hmm. well, I think that's why a lot of people like Sanguinius because it's quite like a he's a contrast to what is a very grim and you know unforgiving setting. It's like the potential of what the universe could be like if it wasn't always mm-hmm. at war. <laughs> yeah. Funny enough, though, all of his I guess noble uh, traits there is something very deeply flawed about Sanguinius, which is inside of him there is a kind of deep like almost to the end of even the, the horror heresy, unspoken rage within him. It's actually one of, it's a flaw that even shows within his sons of blood angels. That's why a lot of people find them particularly interesting because they have a kind of inner darkness to them, whereas a lot of the other people have it. It's like worn on their sleeve, but to Sanguinius, it is a, 
almost it's an insecurity of his uh he isn't he knows he's kind of like a he's not a perfect being but he knows he inhabits like virtue and so he kind of doesn't really enjoy the fact that he is uh he has this kind of deep hate within him a little bit you know a tainting of darkness in the blood literally it's described as and as for his uh inspiration unfortunately this one is not again as deep as a lot of the other stuff it just means uh sanguis is latin for blood <laughs> it's literally just stolen from the latin obviously there's some biblical inspiration there but this one's a little bit more i guess right on the nose unfortunately but speaking of on the nose, uh, we will finish up here with our last Primark. Don't you know who I am? I'm the juggernaut, bitch! Ferris Manus. Hey. Uh, Key Iron hands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Iron hands. Keyword stubborn. So <laughs> the story of Primark number 10 is he exits the warp, you know, the, you know, the scattering from terror, and he lands upon the world called Medusa. Funny enough, a Greco-Roman influence has once again shown up. Mm, so like pattern. the world of Medusa is kind of like everything but in grayscale. It sucks. Um, it is just feel like, you know, black rocks and it's just the skies are dark and grim. Nothing, none of the life that grows on this world Aaron. is particularly interesting. I think they even said... I, I've been reading one of the books where it says, what do they do for food on Medusa? And they like have like this weird mollusk that they grind up into like a black paste. And that's considered the best food they have. Nice. And so this is a world of just, it describes in one word, brutal. It's so unforgiving. It's not even uh, a death world in the same sense. The, uh, some of the other planets are where like it's actually trying to kill you. It's just, there's nothing that helps you. On it's Medusa. nothing personal it just sucks <laughs> yeah. it just sucks it just sucks you die of boredom and uh <laughs> ferris manis well he was not called ferris manis yet excuse me so the primark number 10 uh he lands upon this world and he's kind of uh, he's alone he grows up uh initially like very much by himself doesn't see other humans but even as a youngster it gets worse because he was set upon in his story, it's almost like kind of myth here. He's set upon by something called the the uh, Great Silver Worm uh, Azirnoth. I don't know if I'm saying that properly. Azirnoth, I think, yeah. Azirnoth. Sounds kind of Necron tier. So, mm. oh yeah, we will. And uh, so as a young Primarch, he's actually immediately attacked by this, even in the myths of the people who live on this world, they describe like the silver kind of beast, the silver worm or the silver dragon and it's actually a it's actually a jewel which kind of is a defining moment shall we say so primate number 10 is immediately <laughs> almost killed and he eventually battles this worm he doesn't know any you know he doesn't even speak at this point but he's he already he knows how to fight because in his dna and he drowns the silver worm in uh, a flow of lava that comes from one of the volcanoes on medusa and it actually, funny enough, melts this great silver worm and it starts to like um, sort of flow over his arms. And it's always to the point where it's like near his shoulders, like sort of mid bicep. And these kind of uh, 
this actual trait is what then sort of earns him the name Ferris Manus, which, funny enough, means kind of iron hand in Latin, or the inspiration part's done now. But So he is the iron-handed Primarch, and Ferris himself is... The word stubborn doesn't even cut it. He is just... Um, blunt. He is bl- blunt as perfect. Yeah, blunt is his kind of way. He is very much a lead from the front kind of person. He, he is super headstrong. And this is partly because even though he did eventually find humanity, like the people who lived upon this world, they were semi-technologically... There, yeah, I'll struggle with that word. Semi-technologically advanced. The people of Medusa are like a... They had their own like clan system. And the great clans, so they were like great clans and minor clans... And they were all warring for dominance. It's kind of similar to uh, Perturabo's world, but it's actually a little bit more vicious. This was, there wasn't politics involved in this. There were no, there wasn't espionage or secrets or anything like that. This was... Perturabo's homeworld had wine and grapes. And, like, yeah, Medusa, Medusa, <laughs> Medusa had iron and war. Dirt. They had dirt and blood, essentially. And so it, it, the entire world was at like a constant state of war. And this is when Ferris Manus showed up and as you would probably guess from this person, he was no fulgrim. There was no diplomacy. Someone who was this headstrong and had to battle like straight away only knew one method, and that was essentially combat. And so he crushed, literally under his iron fist, he actually crushed them into submission, the people of Medusa. But kind of uniquely amongst his uh, brothers, a lot of them might like, unite the world, and it's like an age of peace, but... Ferris himself always saw, you can even see it from his earliest existence. Like he just sees peace as weakness because he always thinks, like he almost died like immediately <laughs> as soon as he was essentially conscious. So he always sees himself as um, need to improve himself, be stronger, you know, survive, live, you know, adapt. Yeah, like struggle brings growth. Look at me. I got some iron hands. Cool. Yes. Yeah. And he. Um, yeah, so he the clans of Medusa themselves, he actually doesn't unite the clans. He keeps the system intact and he kind of acts as this kind of overseer of the world where he is a uniting force at times, but then in times of peace, he will let the inter-clan struggles reunite again because it keeps them strong. It keeps the people on survival mode. And this is kind of uh, his tactic and his philosophy in the world. But also kind of, the other thing about places where war happens, obviously war also will breed innovation. And Medusa itself was, I wouldn't say it's not a forged world, as described in much of Warhammer, but forging, crafting, the like, the metallurgy of the... Yeah, it, very much industrious. And even Ferris within himself, he actually had like a, an innate ability to craft and produce things. He could actually... I think it's even funny, he said, like, Vulcan, another Primarch, he says, it's unnerving that Ferris, with his iron hands, are, like, kind of molten, they're like molten silver arms. Well, even um, where he grew up in his little cave area, it's it's basically yeah. like a, ne- a buried Necron tomb, and he grew up observing, what is this drop pod thing? That's weird. What's this metal? That's weird. And he grew up trying to understand it all. And he, uh, the unnerving part about him is he can forge with his hands, like, <laughs> like not mm. with a hammer. And um, so he he learns to build and craft, but a lot of the times, like whereas some might say, you know, blacksmithing and crafting is an art form, which obviously it is, his crafting 
was always functional. It was in the pursuit of strength and improvement. And though not everything he not everything he made was ugly, it was always designed to be functional and you know function over form essentially. And the way so if you were to sort of see uh, Ferris Manus himself, his aesthetics again number one enormous, huge, tanky. Uh, he is kind of I, I wouldn't say he's the chunkiest of all the Primarchs, but he kind of rivals Perturabo. Obviously, both of them having a sort of affinity Certainly for the word the iron definitely not the prettiest <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that where so he's got slightly slightly tan skin uh again like greco kind of uh european features silver arms uh that's from his battle with the worm it's one of his most uh, defining sort of characteristics and ferris was not described as a beautiful man he was nicknamed by fulgrim the gorgon as a but it's, it's actually a quite uh, funny inside joke between them but he is uh even like even his face is it's a brutal design uh there again like no it's form over function like you a know pugilist face that he's been like punched a hundred times yeah he's almost i think they like even they describe it, he's beautiful in his own strange way of being like just the most uh exact form if you know what I mean. it, like, his face was the form of what it looked like he's been chilled yeah, <laughs> he's so just from stone back around and becomes beautiful <laughs> <laughs> yeah essentially like, it's a hard way to describe it but essentially he comes back around like a pug <laughs> like a pug <laughs> man pugs manners. Oh manners. <laughs> and that even his war gear is like bulky and he is it's again it projects strength and uh, his personality is, as I said earlier, it's stubborn. He's extremely stubborn compared to a lot of his brothers, and he's quite hot-headed at times. But he also, I know, hot-headed. That's spoilers. Um, but he's also, weirdly enough, he has a pursuit of kind of like Fulgrim of perfection itself, but in a different view of that. So he wishes to be perfect, to be the strongest being. He wishes to be perfect because. Not because he wishes to be perfect itself, but because he despises the opposite, which is weakness. Because weakness yeah, like, could get you killed. It's like perfect in function, not aesthetic. Very much so. And like even when he meets his story of when he meets the emperor, because he actually meet he's the third or fourth, I think Primarch found when he I meets the fourth. I think he because it will be around these, the same time as Lehman. About the same time as Lehman, and when he actually meets the emperor, he challenges the emperor to a fight, and. Uh, this is the, the this is the time where he's been the strongest thing on that planet for a while, and the idea of when he meets the emperor and there's a being much stronger than him, it's actually something where he sorry, it's actually something which drives him uh, to be even stronger. The reason he actually in his own heart improves to be so strong and to be perfect is because one day he actually wants to challenge the emperor. But not in a way like he wants to be emperor. He just wants to be as strong as the emperor. I want a rematch. I like the uh, the the meme from Kung Fu Panda. It's like finally a worthy opponent. <laughs> Our battle shall be legendary. <laughs> Pretty much. He's... Did they? What it wasn't it like a Dragon Ball Z battle? Like they were just punching mountain ranges in half. Pretty much. Oh, good old Dragon Ball. Unfortunately, he has no drip. Um, <laughs> my boy Ferris. It's all function, no drip, uh, no riz. He can't, he can't turn blonde and become fifty times as powerful either. That probably would have helped. <laughs> He is like, if you saw Sanguinius and then uh, Ferris, you'd be like, wait, those are your brothers. Like, that's, it's like, what's the film with like Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, 
Danny DeVito and they're meant to be brothers in <laughs> that film. Um, very much so, apart from Danny, De- Danny DeVito is the same height as Arnold, which is amazing in my mind. I was imagining him coming out of the couch and um, always sunny. <laughs> Everyone knows that scene. And obviously, lastly, the inspiration for Ferris is Latin for Iron Hand. It's, again, very on the nose on this one, but it kind of is an encompassing thing for them the iron hand to themselves is you know iron is immute to them is like it's immutable it's an iron fist of will it's strength and that's pretty much i think the first 10 primarchs does anyone have any questions or want to comment perhaps on their favorite out of the list i like the pretty one <laughs> I, 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 no, no, we'll go in order so eli eli who's your who's your favorite so far and still fulgrim Always oh of course of course do you actually know and would you explain why he's for why is Fulgrim your favorite? I don't think I've ever asked. Probably because uh, I read the book Fulgrim first. <laughs> Fair enough. That's very much likely the reason. I also just like his story a lot. And he has the saddest story of all the Primarchs. First and love. Yeah, I think it's, truly. It's cool, it's cool that he's one of the only ones that has some regrets about it all. Mm-hmm. Just like specifically with... All right, well, I... I I don't want to. Well, also, also pre-fall, Fulgrim was like. There's a lot of good reasons to like him. I think. Just uh, without spoilers, regrets over what he did to a certain person that he kept trying to clone that certain person, and it never worked. But he doesn't give up. It's like it's very sad, very Mm -hmm. uh, compelling. What about uh, what about you, Andy? Who's your favorite so far? Without a doubt, Jagatai. He's my favorite. He always has been. Speedway. Why, why is your favorite? For sure. um, there's, there's several reasons. One, because he's amazing at one-liners. But um, I like how he is the most... Um, he's very critical of things that are objectively wrong in the universe. Like some of the decisions the Emperor makes. He's He he shows restraint when other Primarchs don't. He, he doesn't boast, but he's competent. He He's a very... He's very much um, a difficult Primarch to like. People go, oh, he's just some dude. But when you actually like look into his stories and his books, I find him the most compelling. I do like other ones, like I like I like Gilliman, I like the Lion to an extent. But you know, I'm a loyalist fan more than any, and Khan is the one for me. Awesome. And you, Colin, who's your favorite so far of the uh, first ten? Probably, honestly, Lehman. Uh, I don't like the wolves, but I do like Lehman a lot. He's uh, he's pretty oh. down to earth. He seems, in many ways, one of the most human Primarchs because, yeah, I don't know. He it, it, like he seems like the kind of guy I could have a drink with. I would not remember any of that <laughs> night if I'm drinking with Lehman Russ. But like, it just seems like like just like a guy he'd be fun to hang out with. He's a nice contrast as well yeah. compared to a lot of them are essentially just like Greco-Roman warlords. Mm-hmm. So he's he's a nice little extra flavor. I wish mm-hmm. his legion was actually Vikings and not just Viking <laughs> cosplayers. Less wolves, more uh, Vikings. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much for listening. We covered a lot uh, today. Well, actually, funny enough, it's actually just a taster of what is to come from mm-hmm. all the Primarchs. And we will obviously delve into each of them uh, and their histories. And it's, again, they're, you know, Primarchs are definitely sort of the best part of Warhammer. They are deeply flawed humans despite their elevation and we'll be learning a lot more about them in the uh, episodes to come 
thank you all so much uh, for listening, for enduring, <laughs> shall we say, <laughs> enduring this uh, absolute fest. And Colin, who who are we tackling next? Ah, happily, I will let them know. So, of course, we're going to bring you know their Primark up. Kind of hard not to. Uh, Robute Gilliman, but the focus will not be on him. It will be on his Legion later chapter, the greatest of them all, the Ultramarines. Ooh, I I love my. Uh, Matt Ward aside, I love myself. I'm leaving a picture of Matt Ward at the end of this podcast. That's, that's the final yeah. picture. Did you know he wrote the dialogue for Vermintide? What? What? Yeah, honestly. Didn't he, was, didn't he write and, the Demon Killer as well? I don't know. That's McNeil. That, no. yeah. oh, I think, okay. I think Battlefleet yes. Gothic too. So it turns out oh, he's a pretty oh. goddamn good writer when he's just writing dialogue. Just don't put him in charge of the setting. Just don't put any armor that's blue near him. <laughs> or gray or oh, gray or gray or the gray knights as well yeah well thank you so much for listening uh please like and subscribe if you want to hear more uh also comment below out of your list so far which one's your favorite we'd love to know your reasons why particularly because we all got like our own reasons like sometimes it's you know it's our own like relation to that person like, like i said you know having a, a beer with a good old lehman russ but uh <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, Bye everyone. Well.